Making promises is easy. Uh, keeping them is the hard part. Herbert Hoover ran for president in 1928, and uh, one GOP campaign circular boasted a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Less than one year into his presidency, the stock market crashed, ushering in the Great Depression. Prior to the 1930s, a balanced federal budget, they, they were the norm. In 1932, FDR promised the nation to balance the federal budget. During his 12 years as president, he ran a cumulative $194 billion deficit and never balanced the budget. During his 1964 campaign, Lyndon B. Johnson promised not to send troops to Vietnam. Less than two months after being sworn in as president, 3,500 Marines arrived in Vietnam. And three years later, uh, there were 548,000 troops in Vietnam. 30,000 had already died. At the 1988 Republican National Convention, George H.W. Bush promised, read my lips. No new taxes. Two years into his presidency, Bush proposed tax revenue increases. A New York Post headline read, uh, read, read my lips, I lied. And Bush approved the tax increases. Barack Obama said, as president, I will close Guantanamo. When he left office, there were 41 prisoners still at Guantanamo. We'll see if Trump keeps his promises, but I think you can see the trajectory and probably have your guess. Making promises is easy, but keeping them is the hard part. Haven't we all been hurt by broken promises? Maybe your parents broke promises to you, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, a fiance, a spouse, or maybe a coach, or an employer, or a best friend. Broken promises hurt. We feel betrayed. Our experience of broken promises uh, may bring suspicion, doubt, or even cynicism towards promises. So hearing God's promises, we at least sometimes struggle to believe them. Uh, even the strongest Christians at times have uh, a real deep struggle in believing the promises of God, as they should. So what proof is there that God will honor His promises, that He'll keep them? And dear brothers and sisters, God has given us conclusive proof. First, God tells us what he's like in his word. Listen to this. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Brothers and sisters, if, if God said it, he will do it. If God spoke it, he will fulfill it. It is impossible for God not to come through on his promises. Second, God proves that he keeps his promises through his track record in redemptive history. Study scripture and see how God carries through on all his promises. Now, covenants are not ivory tower hypothesizing uh, meant to keep theologians busy. They are precious truth given to God's ordinary people, people like you and me in the pews for, for our comfort, for our assurance, for our joy. Covenants, they beautifully exhibit for us God's dependability and God's faithfulness. 
God didn't establish covenants throughout redemptive history to muddle our minds, brothers and sisters, but to fortify our faith. Covenant theology is like a highlighter pen. As we turn the pages of Scripture, covenant theology highlights God's covenant theme throughout Scripture so that we can see more clearly and easily God's faithfulness and God's absolute supremacy and God's absolute efficacy in and over everything. Covenant theology highlights God's covenant of redemption and God's covenant of works and God's covenant of grace to make them more noticeable for us, that they jump off the page so that we can know what Scripture is ultimately about. Covenant theology highlights for us that God has a good plan and God is working out His good plan and nothing, nothing, nothing can thwart God's good plan. Every covenant highlight in Scripture points to this glorious reality. Jesus Christ is the beautiful fulfillment of God's gracious covenant. His covenant of grace. Covenants help us see that Paul was exactly right when he said, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Isn't that good? Brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see in the Davidic covenant. Jesus Christ is your eternal king who governs you by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves you in the redemption he obtained for you. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus Christ is your eternal king, brothers and sisters, who governs you by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves you in the redemption he obtained for you. Saints, Jesus Christ's sovereign kingship is a wonderful blessing for you and me, now and forever. Now, for those of you who have yet to trust in Christ, if you have yet to trust in Christ, I plead with you, bow the knee to the king. Bow the knee to the, to the king. Confess your sins to him. Believe in him. Submit yourself to his reign and rule. Trust him to deliver you from the tyranny of sin, guilt, and death, and to give you life. As Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you have yet to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the King then the message today is kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. By faith, take refuge in the sovereign and supreme King and rest in His glorious grace. Let's see how Scripture progresses to this kingship of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to 2 Samuel. Genesis introduced God's covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. But then the covenant of grace is ratified in the Abrahamic covenant. Inside of God's gospel promise to Abraham came this promise, and don't forget this one for today, kings shall come from you. And God later clarified that Sarah would bear Abraham a child and that kings of people shall come from her, kings from Abraham and Sarah. Exodus is a great story of redemption foreshadowing salvation in Christ alone. God enters into a temporary covenant with theocratic national Israel and gives them his law. 
The idea of a mediator is prominent in Exodus. Moses foreshadowed Christ. Leviticus fleshes out God's law for theocratic national Israel and gives the gospel of Jesus Christ inside of the types and the shadows of the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Numbers shows Israel wandering about the wilderness and looking ahead to the promised land. Deuteronomy repeats God's law and leadership transfers from Moses, God's chosen mediator of the old covenant, to Joshua, his successor, in a further move towards Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, the mediator of the new covenant. In Joshua, God drives out the inhabitants of the land and gives possession to Israel, a partial fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. The land is allotted to the various tribes, even though the land would not be completely possessed until the Davidic kingdom began, a reality that the book of, of Joshua recognizes. Joshua 21, verse 45 states this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Israel's conquest of the land was already, but not yet. And God was proving to be a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Judges describes God raising up leaders to deliver Israel. The judges foreshadowed Christ. Israel was a mess. A recurring theme throughout the book of Judges is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Another recurring theme is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God was keeping his promises, and he was driving redemptive history to his son, the king. Ruth is a beautiful love story of God's providence. Boaz, an offspring of Abraham, married Ruth, a Gentile, and they had Obed. Obed eventually fathered Jesse, who eventually fathered David, another offspring of Abraham. God was keeping his covenant promises. In 1 Samuel, Israel received their first human king. God was their king, yet they demanded a human king to be like the other nations. Regardless of warnings about human kings, and there were plenty, they got what they wanted. Saul became the king of Israel. And though Saul was from a wealthy family and had movie star good looks, Zac Efron, who's Zac Efron compared to King Saul, who was gorgeous? All right, Brad Pitt. Who's Brad Pitt? We have King Saul. Saul was a terrible choice for king because his heart was evil. Who cares what he looked like? He didn't have a heart for God. And God eventually rejected Saul, tore the kingdom from him, and on to the scene came the shepherd David. The least likely to be king from the family of Jesse, God chose David. And Samuel anointed David king of Israel. And from there on, Saul and David, should we just say they had a turbulent relationship? It wasn't going too well turbulent relationship, and yet it was clear that David's success and his rise to power, it was clear through that, that God blessed David and kept his covenant promises to Abraham. God rose up a king after his own heart, yet that typological king was flawed. That typological king failed, and he only foreshadowed a greater king. Saul died in 2 Samuel, which ended the clash between Saul and David. 
David assumed the throne of Israel. He captured Jerusalem and made it the capital of Israel. He brought the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, which made a significant statement. Dr. Ligon Duncan commented on that. And to bring the Ark into the capital, to the same location, was to emphasize that David's reign in Israel was reflective of the rule of God in Israel. The king of Israel would rule under the direct command of God whose presence was symbolized in the form of the ark, end of quote. God chose David as a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ the king and his eternal and preeminent throne. And this brings us to 2 Samuel 7 where God made a covenant with David. As we look at 2 Samuel 7, I want you to remember two things. Number one, God promised Abraham kings would come from him and Sarah. Number two, God revealed the gospel progressively from Genesis 3.15 through the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants to the new covenant where the gospel became crystal clear in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Davidic covenant adds detail to the covenant of grace. Now get this. The serpent-slaying seed, son, and savior would be a sovereign, a suzerain, a king. So let's dig into 2 Samuel 7. God's grace in David's heart for a house for God. Look at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, God's chosen king was reigning and ruling in a unified kingdom over God's people from the resting place of his palace. What marvelous grace. God keeps his promises and what a marvelous foreshadowing of a greater king and a greater kingdom. King David loved God and had a heart to build God a beautiful house to dwell in. That was grace in David's life. Knowing that God was with David, uh, Nathan the prophet gave David his blessing after hearing about what David planned to do. It wasn't a word from the Lord. He just gave him the blessing to do it. It was a green light. Move ahead with God's house. Next, God's gracious word to David through the prophet Nathan. God's gracious word to David through the prophet Nathan. David wanted to build God a house, but God had different plans. God came in the night to Nathan and he gave him a word. Uh, gave, God gave Nathan a word for David. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? All right, the designation there, my servant, is a unique uh, thing, a unique title to only a few in the Old Testament. David's in good company there. Verses 6 and 7 explain that God delivered his people from Egypt, moved about in a tent for his dwelling, and never asked anyone to build him a house of cedar. David's heart for God was right, but God had other plans. David would not build God a house. God would build David a house. God would build David a house. I think verse 5 when we hear lines like that, is God once again exalting his supremacy and sovereignty over humanity. God would graciously do something for David. It wasn't about what David would do for God. It was about what God would do for David. God had promises to keep, covenant promises to keep, and he didn't need David's help to fulfill those. 
God had a good plan, and David fit into his good plan. Next, God's gracious election and anointing of David. God elected David. God was graciously carrying out his sovereign plan through David, whom he chose. Look at verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince, or we could say leader, over my people Israel. God chose and anointed David king. Psalm 78 verse 70 reads, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, interesting. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. Anointed one. David was anointed king. He was a type of Christ, chosen by God to reign and rule over God's people in order to foreshadow a greater king. Verse 9 shows God's grace and faithfulness. The Spirit of the Lord was with David. It was God who cut off all David's enemies in order to exalt him as king and unify his people beneath David's reign and rule. This is God's sovereign grace, brothers and sisters. This is God keeping his promises to Abraham. My dear friends, the life of David is meant to tell you about Jesus Christ, the greater king. God raised up David as a type of Christ to communicate something about Christ. That's an extremely important point when you look and interpret the life of David and the person of David. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And David was a type of Christ. Next, God's gracious covenant promises to David. God's gracious covenant promises to David. Similar to the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2, the word covenant is not found in 2 Samuel 7. We didn't hear that when Christina read it. However, a bunch of other scriptures make it clear that God indeed established a covenant with David. Uh, One is 2 Samuel 23 verse 5, which records David's last words. He's dying. And David said, "...for he has made with me an everlasting covenant." Another great one is Psalm 89, 3 and 4. We sang this. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 undoubtedly builds upon the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Mosaic covenants to progressively unveil God's one covenant of grace in the time of types and shadows. So much can be gleaned from the Davidic covenant when you realize it's ultimately about Christ the King. I mean, it becomes exciting. You read about Christ in the Old Testament. Now, what covenant did God make with David? What promises did God make David? Eight primary observations. One, verse nine. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, you've heard that covenant promise before. What did God promise Abraham? I will bless you and make your name great. What was God doing? Two, 
Verses 10 and 11, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. Now, you've heard that covenant promise before. What did God promise Abraham? To your offspring I give this land. For all that land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now, we know from Hebrews 11 that Canaan was typological of heaven. God was giving Middle Eastern real estate to Israel under a great king to foreshadow his gift of all the earth to Christ, the king and his royal people. Christ would come and vanquish all his enemies, including the last one, death. And God adds in verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The peace permanence and rest for Israel under the reign and rule of David in the earthly kingdom was a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and typological of the eternal peace, permanence, and rest for all God's people under the reign and rule of Christ in the heavenly kingdom. Israel, united under David in a peaceful kingdom, points to a greater union, a greater peace, a greater king, and a greater kingdom. Three, verse 11 says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's big. That is big. Now, house is used in different ways in 2 Samuel 7. You really got to pay attention to how the term is used. Brown and Keel note this. In Hebrew, house can refer to several things. In terms of a dwelling, it can refer to a house, palace, or temple. In terms of family, it can mean a household, a family line, or a dynasty. House can also include a nation, a people, or a kingdom, so the house of Israel is the people or kingdom of Israel. Okay. Verses 1 and 2, David lived in a house, meaning palace. In verses 5 through 7, house refers to a temple for God. Then in verse 11, God promises to build David a house. Didn't David already have a palace? Didn't he have a place to live? Right? Isn't that what we're thinking? Well, in the next verse, verse 12... God promised to raise up David's offspring and to establish his kingdom. Then in verse 16, God promised that David's house and kingdom shall be made sure forever. God's covenant promise was to build David a house or a dynasty who would reign and rule over the kingdom or a people forever. Folks, are you, are you thinking? Do you see where this is pointing? This is very interesting. Solomon, he was certainly part of, of the covenant. He was part of this covenant. In fact, God gave Solomon covenantal conditions. Conditions in 1 Kings 9. God told Solomon in covenantal and very solemn tones, this is what he told him, listen. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, 
And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. The Lord brought the disaster. How did Solomon do? Terribly. He was in utter failure. After his reign, things got messy and the kingdom eventually split and Israel was eventually exiled out of the land. Yet, God kept every last promise because he sent his only son to do what Israel failed to do, to do what Solomon failed to do. The Davidic covenant was not ultimately about Solomon. A greater king was always in view. God promised to build David a house. That's significant. In the face of Israel's and their king's failures, God sent his royal son to redeem all the elect and to build them into a house of God, the church in which God himself dwells. Consider God's Davidic covenant. Did his promises fail? Paul asked this question in Romans 9. No, God's word did not fail. It never has failed. God's plan was finally about Israel. It was not finally about Israel. and was not finally about David's dynasty, but about Christ, the true Israel, and his church. God preserved a remnant. Don't we see that throughout redemptive history? God is preserving a remnant by his grace And Christ comes, the great final king, the great son of David, and he builds the church into a house of God. People, not a temple. 4, verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You've heard that covenant promise before. Abraham, the Messiah, would be a son of of Abraham and a son of David. Oh, my friends, wait till next week where we tee off on Matthew. It's getting good. The connections are here. You know, I just want to put a little plug in here for Sunday school. Fantastic word this morning, deeply challenging and enriching, and major connections for why this verse has to be true. He had to come from the body of Abraham, the body of David. This is good stuff. You're missing out on Sunday school if you're not here. 5, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon eventually built this beautiful structure, the temple in Jerusalem. It was amazing. People revered it. And yet, that's not the dominant point of this verse. 
Jesus Christ is God's chosen and anointed Davidic king who builds the house of God for the glory of God's name. Jesus said plainly, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and he reigns now, brothers and sisters, and he reigns forever, brothers and sisters. He is on his throne every time someone gets saved through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is transformed and lives beneath uh, his reign and his rule, this new life in Christ. God's promise from verse 13 is being fulfilled. Christ is building his house. He's building his house. You think hell can stop him? Six, verses 14 and 15, they add something unique. Something startling to the ears of an old covenant Jew. Something amazing. Listen closely. God promises King David about his future royal son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. The serpent slaying seed and Savior from Genesis 3.15 would be a son, absolutely sure. But here God promises his own son. The offspring that God promised to raise up from David's own body, this royal son, would be God's own son upon which his steadfast love would remain forever. The promised Messiah would not only be from David, he would be from God. Now let's advance a moment, just a taste of it, to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, where God says, of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Every other Davidic king failed. Failed. Everyone broke covenant with God. There were better ones. But they all broke covenant. But as Hebrews 3.6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As a son. Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things because of him alone, God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, you notice I missed something in verse 14. Jump right over it. Hopefully you were like, what's he doing? Why does verse 14 say, of the promised king when he commits iniquity? Uh-oh. Did Jesus Christ the king commit iniquity? No. We move on. No. I, no. You have to remember that God's covenant promise here is prophetic on multiple layers Remember that Solomon is a partial fulfillment of this promise. Solomon did commit iniquity and all kinds of just rampant sin and idolatry. And the discipline of the Lord, was it not upon Solomon? Yes, but God never removed his love from the Davidic dynasty. The Davidic dynasty suffered immense conflict due to rampant sin and idolatry, and the kingdom was eventually divided and Israel was exiled from the land. Yet God never forgot his promises to David, nor removed his steadfast love from the Davidic dynasty. Who eventually came from the Davidic line? Born of David, 
Jesus, our great king. Solomon fulfilled the iniquity prophecy. However, let me submit to you another angle on that. There's another way to look at verse 14. Jesus Christ, he was indeed perfect. Read his best friends. They knew that he was righteous. Not one sin, yet he did also bear the discipline of God. He bore the rod of men. He bore the stripes of the sons of men, not for his own iniquity, brothers and sisters, but for the iniquity of all of his people. He suffered in their place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross seems to be in view in verse 14 upon which Christ bore our iniquity. It was our failure. It was our sin. Did he not suffer for it? 7. Verses 16 and 17. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Many years after David and Solomon, an angel named Gabriel visited a young virgin and said about her child, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hear that. Of his kingdom there will be no end. He reigns and he rules forever. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the son. How did David respond to God's covenant grace and God's covenant promises Man, this really stinks. I can't build him a house. I can't believe he'd take that away from him. I'm a man after his own heart. Is that, was that David's heart? Read verses 18 through 29. David responded with faith, with worship, with praise, with adoration, with gratitude, deep gratitude. God's gracious covenants lead people to faith. They lead people to worship. They lead people to praise. They lead people to adoration. They lead people to deep gratitude. Is that what covenant theology does for you? If not, perhaps you're missing the profoundness of covenant theology. God's covenant with David fortified his faith because David knew God. And if God made those kinds of promises to David, then David knew without a shadow of a doubt that God would come through on every single one. When you look at God's covenants, do they fortify your faith? Do covenants comfort and assure you that because you are not you united to Christ by faith, that God will do for you every single thing that He promises to do for you? He won't miss one promise. David was a man after God's own heart, Because by grace, David trusted God's covenants and promises. And God used David. The Davidic covenant, folks, it's essential to covenant theology. But you know what? Let's go a step further. It's essential to the gospel. This is essential to the gospel. You don't have the gospel without this. 
One study note said it like this, the theological and historical significance of the divine promise to David recorded in these verses can hardly be overestimated. Indeed, the promise of an enduring Davidic kingdom has been called the summit of the entire Old Testament. Looking back, it takes up the promises and blessings made to Abraham and his elect seed and brings them to rest on David. Looking forward, it prepares for the messianic hope that inspires Israel's faith before and after the exile in Babylon. The hope for a Messiah culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. End of quote. When we get to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we notice that the Jews were anticipating whom? The son of David. Why? Why all the talk about the son of David? It would be the son of David who would, who would finally deliver all of his people, who would bring redemption. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, is that promised king. Jesus Christ, the king, is proof that God keeps his promises. What more proof do you need? What more do you want? Look at the person of Christ. Now, here's an interesting historical tidbit. Real quick, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And from that point on, the extensive Jewish genealogies, the family connections, were completely lost. Judaism has a real problem on their hands because the Messiah's lineage must be, without a shadow of a doubt, traced back to David. And without the genealogies, no modern Jew would be able to prove their Davidic origin. Unless the genealogies are found and an unquestionable lineage can be proven back to David, there is only one option for the Davidic king. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whose Davidic genealogy is preserved for us in Scripture and is quite precise. Who else could be king? Who, who are you waiting for if you're waiting for another Messiah or Savior or Christ? He's come. He's alive and well. He's interceding on the behalf of His people. His name is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, here, here's where I want to end, and I want this to comfort you. I want this to assure you. I want this to give you joy. I want this to give you so much gratitude. Jesus Christ is your serpent slaying seed, son, savior, and sovereign who governs you by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves you in the redemption that he obtained for you. Michael Brown and Zach Keel write this, quote, the Davidic covenant is like a microscope that allows us to zoom in and see all the beautiful shades and glorious lines of Christ's work as king for us, end of quote. Here's why Jesus Christ as king is precious to us believers. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about Christ being ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our prophet, priest, and king. It says that Jesus, as our eternal king, governs us by his word and spirit. Brothers and sisters, you have a king who loves you 
and who rules you and who directs you by his word and spirit. That's how he's leading you, his word and spirit. His dominion over you is precious grace upon grace. Not only that, as our eternal king, Jesus defends and preserves us in the redemption that he alone obtained for us. Do you know that your king defends you? Who's going to touch you when that kind of king defends you? And he preserves you? Your king preserves you? He protects and provides for you? Will the benevolent king not care for all of his citizens of his glorious kingdom, in fact, all of his brothers and sisters? Will he not care for you, dear brothers and sisters? Dear ones, the king loves you with a steadfast love, and he has built you into a house, a kingdom, a dynasty in order to care for you at your deepest level. To bless you, to bless you. Christ as king is a blessing. That's how you should always hear it. I'm just blessed to be part of his kingdom. He, he, he's king in order to give you a happy life in God. In order to, to give you gratitude in God forever. Are you thankful for your king? The Davidic covenant is sweet because it tells you what kind of king you have, what kind of king bought you, what kind of king leads you. If you know the king, if you know the king, truly know the king, then trust that the king will keep every single promise that he made you, that the king will care for you as one of his own. Trust him. Oh, the beauty and majesty and joy of the king.